Father, we praise you that you have cleansed us by the blood of Christ. You've washed us of all of our sins. Though our sins were red like scarlet, Lord, you have made them white as snow. We have a righteousness that we did not achieve, a perfection that we could not attain, a holiness that's not in us, all because of Jesus, who is our righteousness, who is our holiness, who is our perfection. And we do rejoice to sing that we are right with you, our God, because Jesus, our Savior, is alive. And Lord, we do pray that as we come to your word this morning, you would help us to see more of Jesus. Enjoy this righteousness. Delight in being cleansed and live, O Lord, for you. So we start this new series, Father, we do ask that you would speak to us by your word. We want to hear your word and be shaped by your word and be built up by your word. Your word is life. So Lord, speak to us. Open our minds, push away distraction, clear our hearts, give us faith, help us believe, O oh Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, beloved, if you need a Bible this morning, uh, raise your hands, and uh, I think there's some folks who may have some Bibles to pass out this morning. Anybody need a Bible to follow along with us? All right, I see a couple hands over here. Uh, to my right. Uh, just keep them up. They'll, they'll see you and bring them to you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you may be helped this morning to grab a Bible and follow along. Uh, we're beginning a series this morning that we've called 117. Uh, if you didn't know that your pastor has no original thoughts of his own, then this series title must prove that. We're just ripping off of 116. Uh, we're not ashamed of the gospel. And what comes after 116? Well, 117. Uh, we've sort of taken our key text from Isaiah 117, uh, which calls us to learn to do good, to seek justice, to correct oppression, to bring justice to the, um, the widows and the fatherless. We want to think in this series about what that means. God calls us to that in his word. And so as people who are Bible people, who love his word, we need to think God's thoughts after him and get our minds shaped by God's word. So as we come to this series, I want to sort of state four goals, really. Number one is we want to understand the biblical idea of justice. There's a whole lot of justice talk in the world, and a whole lot of it is not biblical. And we want to learn to hear that word with the Bible ringing in our ears rather than the world. Number two, we want to apply the biblical idea of justice to Christian discipleship. In other words, when we read the Bible and we see over a thousand times the word justice used, and we see, I don't know how many times, the word righteousness used, those are, those are two words that are in the same sort of range of meaning. And we see just thousands of times that term spoken by God in his word, we're meant to understand that is something he means for us to observe as his disciples, to apply, to work out as we follow him. And in that way, number three, I'm hoping in this series that we will reframe our pursuit of justice, not in worldly terms, but in biblical terms. 
And number four, that as we rally around God's word, we will rally with each other. That we will have through this series a set of biblical convictions that actually unify us rather than divide us. So that's the hope. And I just want to say right off the top, there there are two ways that you can wrongly hear this sermon and this series. Two ways that you can wrongly hear this sermon and this series. Number one, you can hear the series as if the series is designed to hurt you. Or number two, you can hear the series as if the series is designed to help you. The series is designed to heal in the best way I know how. By having us base our thoughts, our feelings, our actions on God's word. And God's word will sometimes help us and it will sometimes hurt us. It will sometimes cause us to ball our toes up as it steps on it. And very often it will heal and help. And that's what I'm praying for in this series. In this sermon, which we've titled Risk and Rewards of Discussing Justice, um, I want to sort of hang our thoughts on two points here. Number one, number one, we want to talk about 10 risks with this sermon series. At least 10 risks that I thought of of doing this sermon series, all right? So I don't know if that makes you nervous or makes you comfortable, right? And then number two, three reasons then that this sermon series is necessary. I want to sort of state up front pastorally that I recognize that there, are some, there is some volatility with this topic. And I recognize right up front that those, that volatility will be felt sometimes like a risk or a threat. And yet from the Bible, I want to suggest to us that there are three overwhelming and compelling reasons why we should give our attention to this anyway. Three rewards, four rewards actually, four, four rewards for giving our attention to this. So let's consider these 10 risks. As I said, this is a topical sermon series, which means normally if you're visiting with us, I'll take a a short passage of the scripture or maybe even a long passage of scripture and we'll stay in that one passage and I'll explain its meaning and try to apply it to our lives. But in this series, because the Bible has so much to say about this topic and because this topic is actually quite complex, we're going to have to bounce around in the Bible and try to hold the whole Bible together so that we think God's thoughts after him in a balanced and proportionate way. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and, and get the hinges loose and uh, oil it. If you haven't opened your Bible in a while, go ahead and oil the hinge a little bit. Uh, we, we're going to be opening it up and moving around a little bit. But let's start with these 10 risks. These 10 risks with this sermon series and with this sermon. And you might divide these 10 risks into two groups of five. So there are five risks that come from doing the series and five risks that come from avoiding the series. In other words, there are risks on both hands with this subject. There there are dangers of talking about this and there are dangers of not talking about them. I just want to bring them all very quickly into our view. So five risks of doing the series. Number one, conversations about justice, air quotes, can be divisive. Can be divisive. This is true, especially in our age of hyper-partisanship and demonizing the other side. If we speak poorly, we run the risk of deepening divides. So we'll practice what the Bible says in Titus 3.10. Paul writes there to Titus, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, 
have nothing to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. The Bible gives us instruction for how to deal with division. And as we go through a topic like this where it could be so tempting to be divided, we need to bring that instruction to the conversation as well. Not looking to be divisive. Number two, conversations about justice can lead to unbiblical definitions of the gospel itself. Some people have taken justice and put it in the place of the gospel. So that what is central to them and what occupies their affection is this pursuit of justice. Now, I'm going to be making the case that understanding and doing justice is absolutely vital to our faith. But we cannot forget what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. You will know these words. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised, and on the third day, and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, when Paul says in accordance with the scriptures, he's talking about the Bible, and he's saying the thing that the Bible says is of first importance isn't justice, but Jesus. That he died for our sins. That he was buried and raised three days later. Now, that truth of the gospel has a lot to do with how we understand justice, but they are not synonyms. They cannot be exchanged. And there's a danger to that. Number three, conversations about justice can entangle church leaders and Christians in what the Bible calls civilian affairs. Civilian affairs. In other words, if we're not careful, one risk is it can kind of get us off the main thing. And so Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Christ is our captain. He's enlisted us in his army. Our aim is to please him. That's why we're giving thought to what he said about this topic in the Bible. But our aim is not to sort of go off and do some other things out of proportion. We want to keep the main thing the main thing. Number four, you guys keeping up with me? The idea of justice is another risk. The idea of justice is now associated with a number of issues and movements that are not Christian in their aim or methods. And so there's the risk of being associated with some things that we actually don't want to be associated with, that we want to carefully distinguish uh, between Christian and non-Christian precisely so that true justice and our Lord shine forth clearly. Maybe a couple texts for why we want to do that. Romans 12 verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, right? Hold fast to what is good. Paul goes on in Romans 14, 16. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So we're called to be discerning in that way, to sort of distinguish between evil on the one hand, good on the other, then to cling to the good and to cling and to do the good in such a way that we prevent it from being spoken of as evil. Right? And that has massive implications for the associations that we make. Number five, a risk of doing this. The conversations about justice feel like they can force us into political positions 
we disagree with and even force us out of the church. These conversations, perhaps more than any other, touch upon matters of conscience. No two of us have the same conscience. And that means we differ with each other at various points. And if we deal with this difference in a worldly way, we will try by force of argument or social pressure to make other people take our position. The goal is not to bind one another's conscience to one political party or one policy position or anything of that sort. Rather, the goal is to have our consciences bound and shaped by the word of God. It's the only thing that can legitimately bind the conscience is God's word because he's Lord. And we come under that lordship by coming under his word. So those are five risks of not of doing this, right? We engender the possibility of division. We engender the possibility of binding people's consciences. We face the possibility of unbiblical definitions of the gospel. We may get entangled in civilian affairs and so on. So oftentimes what, what then is concluded, because those are real dangers and they're painful risks when they happen, what is concluded is therefore we don't talk about this. And, and much of the church has sort of taken that position. We don't, we don't talk about this. We don't do politics. And we don't, we don't do that kind of thing because it's divisive. And I don't think I have to convince you that we probably have landed in a day and age where that strategy no longer seems to be effective. Where not talking about it doesn't really achieve the peace that we want in Christ's body. Right? So there are risks then of not talking about this. Let me give you five. So the, so the next one, number six, is that our culture and politics already disciple us into unbiblical views. Right? So one result of not talking about the Bible's teaching on justice is we can end up letting our favorite news channels and our favorite commentators and secular personalities effectively disciple us in this area. And if we allow the world to tell us what justice is, then we should not be surprised that we become worldly and divided in the church. And worse, we sometimes baptize that worldly view as Christian when it's not. Number seven, the risk of not doing this, is that we risk repeating the bad historical witness of the church. Historically, the church has sometimes been on the wrong side of justice concerns and at other times has been complicit by its silence. A few times the church has gotten it correct, but our failures really loom large and those failures, they complicate the claims of Christ. And so just to pick some big examples, right? There are quarters of the Christian church that we're on the wrong side of the slavery question. No doubt about it. Argued for slavery, held slaves, and to this day, for some people, that's a stumbling block. There were churches that were on the wrong side of the civil rights movement. Right? That's in living memory of some of us. And to this day, that church is, that part of the church is hindered by its poor witness. Or to take another example, in the, when, when the AIDS crisis broke out, many churches responded very poorly to that. And to this day, for many people, the witness of the church, having been bad, 
continues to saddle the gospel and the church with that reputation. Unless we think better than our forebears did, and unless we apply the Bible better than many of our forebears, we're likely to repeat the mistake. And we're likely to continue in that bad witness. Number eight. If we don't do this series, then we will most likely sin against God. We'll most likely sin against God. Why do you say that, Tabidi? Well, God commands that we learn to do justice. The call to worship, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where the prophet Isaiah says to Israel there, cease to do evil, learn to do good. Then it says, seek justice, that's a command. And, and then it says, correct oppression. Bring justice to the, to the fatherless and, and the widow. That's a command. Or Matthew 23, 23, which verse I've just fallen in love with over this past year, year and a half, where Jesus, speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He says, you tithe mint and cumin and dill. You take household plants and you give 10% of those. You are very particular about that aspect of the law. But then Jesus says, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and steadfastness, or in Luke's version, and the love of God. To neglect to do justice, which Jesus defines as the weightier matter of the law, is inevitably going to end up in sin against God. At least the sin of omission and sometimes sins that we commit. Number nine, we may end up treating the Bible as insufficient for this part of our lives if we don't think about what the Bible teaches about justice. 2 Timothy three fifteen and 16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Pastor Jai Hill just preached to us a wonderful sermon on this verse, this very verse last week. Well, that sufficiency of the Bible, that, that the Bible is inspired and it's sufficient to thoroughly equip the man of God for every good work, that's true too of the disciple's life when it comes to seeking and doing justice. But often I find people too quickly saying the Bible doesn't say anything about this or that. The Bible doesn't comment on this or that. And then sometimes people go too quickly to talk at length about their favorite political philosophy or their favorite political leader or, or what have you without ever exploring what the Bible does say. And I think we're facing a crisis in the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture on this subject. Which brings us to number 10. Number 10, if we don't think about this carefully and biblically, then I'm concerned we risk prolonging disunity in the church. Prolonging disunity in the church. Many of you have read the little book, um, Divided by Faith. Christian Smith, I forget the other author. If you haven't, I, I recommend it to you. And they're thinking about um, the, the ways in which the Christian church in this country are divided, is divided along racial lines. They make a very um, compelling and I think startling claim as they look at the data and as they talk about division in the church. 
And one of the claims is this, that many Christians say, hey, we can be unified if we just preach the gospel. If we just preach the gospel, we'll come together, we'll focus on Christ, we'll be one. And they make the argument that actually the Christian church is more divided along racial lines, particularly when it comes to these sort of justice issues and so on, than is the rest of the world. That, that actually, if you sort of polled where, if you imagine a spectrum, um, sort of along racial lines, black groups, white groups, and, and you sort of looked at folks who were not Christians, who are secular, and you look at where they fell out on certain issues, and just to take labels for a moment, African Americans tending to be more progressive, white Americans tending to be more conservative, that, that in the secular world, they're about this far apart. Add Christianity and the church, and that division gets even wider even further apart. Beloved, these things ought not be so. These things ought not be so. So there's either something defective in how we're thinking about the gospel, or there's something defective in how we're approaching the rest of the Bible, because apparently we're not seeing increasing unity. And I think that's what the Lord wants for his church. Convinced of that. And so if we don't think about this carefully, then I think we may prolong and even deepen the disunity that's already there. And, and I'm convinced that the Lord would have us work against these things. So I think at least these 10 risks are possible with this topic. I'm sure you could add others. And so you, again, you might ask the question, why do this series then, Pastor T? And my answer would be very simply, because those things are already true in some measure and we need Jesus to fix it. We need Jesus to fix it. And as I look around the church world and travel and speak at conferences and visit, visit churches to, to share in some way, it seems to me that, again, we're already divided along this line and, and people are already being judged and misunderstood. And, and sadly, the last several months, we've seen people break alliances with their local churches, break away from their theological camps over these issues. And in the middle of it, I am concerned that we are breaking away from the Bible and gospel and Jesus. So how do we fix it? Well, beloved, we never fix spiritual problems by dodging the Bible. We can only fix spiritual problems by applying the Bible. And applying the Bible where it hurts. Applying the Bible where it hurts. If we go outside after the service today and we see a little kid out playing on the sidewalk, maybe they're on a scooter or something and speeding down the sidewalk and they hit a bump and they fall and, and skin their knee, if we're compassionate people, we'll go up to the little child and make sure they're, they're okay. If it's your child, not only if it's your child, you might say something like, let me kiss your boo-boo, right? But if it ain't your child, that just gets you arrested or it should, right? But you go up and you brush off the knee and you, you, get the, you get the scrapes clean and maybe you've got a Band-Aid or some antiseptic and, and you apply it to the knee, don't you? You don't go up to the child who's just fallen off their scooter and scuffed up their knee and you say, let me kiss your elbow. That doesn't make any sense. You have to apply the remedy to the wound. And I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that a lot of our gospel preaching is like kissing elbows when the knee is scraped. And so what we need to do is bring the Bible to the wound and let the Bible do the healing. 
That's the remedy. And that's why we want to come to this topic and spend some time on this topic. So, having said that, I don't want to just make a pragmatic case. I also want to make a biblical case. And we'll give us four reasons why we should do this series. Four rewards that I believe the Lord has for us as we think carefully and prayerfully through this subject and through this topic. And if you want, you can follow along with me uh, in these passages of Scripture. Number one, we'll get the reward of knowing God himself. The reward of knowing God himself. Look with me in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Jeremiah chapter 9, 23 and 24, the prophet Jeremiah is speaking to the people of Israel. And he has this to say in the midst of that sermon. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, notice, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. (laughs) Beloved, to know our God is a matter of great boasting. It's a matter of great rejoicing, a matter of great delighting, a matter of great happiness. We're, We're fools if we boast in our strength, and our strength is failing. We're foolish if we if we boast in human wisdom. When God has told us in his word that he confounds human wisdom. And we're, we're fools if we boast in our riches because our money makes wings and flies away. You can't take it with you, as my mama would say. We're foolish if we boast all in that. But there is one thing supremely worth boasting in. It is that we understand and we know God. We should glory and delight in the personal knowledge of God. In fact, according to John 17, 3, that's what salvation is, to know God, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. We should glory in that. However, to know God and to understand him means we have some information about his character what he's like, and and how he acts. And specifically, God tells us here through Jeremiah that we ought to understand that he is the Lord. He's the owner and ruler of all things. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And and then he tells us what he's like. He is the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Let me put put it in the negative. If you don't know this about God, then you don't know God. If you and I don't know that he is the Lord, if we don't know that he practices, present tense, steadfast love, that he practices justice, that he practices righteousness, notice not just on the final day when he brings a perfect justice, but notice what he says. He does that in the earth right now. That that's what God is up to in the world is putting things to right. If we don't know that about him, then beloved, We don't know God well. We don't know 
some things about him that he says right here, he wants us to glory in, to boast in. See, to understand and to know God is to gladly accept and anticipate these things about him. I say gladly accept because God himself in verse 24, he says, for in these things I delight. God is pleased with who he is. He likes himself. He doesn't have self-esteem problems. He says, this is how I am. I'm righteous. I'm just. I'm steadfast in my love. And that's all right. I delight in these things. And beloved, the truest act of worship occurs when our hearts delight in what God delights in. When our joys map over God's joys. And here in Jeremiah 9, he's calling us to to love justice and righteousness. It's interesting when Moses leads the people out of Exodus in Exodus, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 32, and he breaks out there in the song of Moses, the first thing that he sings about the character of God is that God is just and righteous. Deuteronomy 32, 4, the rock, his way is perfect for all his ways are justice a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. I wish God had put the music notes to that song in the book. For we're meant to be singing this praise of God's character all of our days. Zephaniah 3 verse 5, you can write this down and look at it later. Zephaniah 3 verse 5, the prophet Zephaniah says there, the Lord within her within, and within this oppressing city in verse 1. This unrighteous, oppressing city whose officials are corrupt. He says in verse 5, the Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. You see, God may be surrounded by the godless and the oppressive. But every morning he makes his justice to shine like the rising sun. We're meant to understand and to live in the light of God's character. And that's meant to be for us a great reward to know God in this way and to glory in him. But there's a second reward of thinking through this subject. It is the reward of the happiness of worshiping God in a way that pleases him. Worshiping God in a way that pleases him. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5, in this chapter, Amos is preaching like a good um, evangelist. He's calling the people to seek the Lord and to live. Over and over, he says that throughout this chapter. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. And you'll see why he says that in verse 7 of chapter 5. is because the people have turned justice to wormwood, to bitterness, and cast down the righteousness to the earth. Verse 11, notice what they do. They trample on the poor and they exact taxes of grain from him. Verse 12, at the end, they afflict the righteous and they take a bribe and they turn aside the needy in the gate. And so God calls them through Amos in verse 15 to hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. But what I want us to observe begins in verse 21. Notice what God goes on to say there about their worship. 
I hate. I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Verse 24. But instead, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You will know verse 24. I don't think anybody in the last two generations has made that verse more popular than Dr. King. Often quoting that verse, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. More than just religious offerings and external acts of worship, God wants a people who not just gather on Sunday morning or gather in that day in the temple to go through these rituals. God wants a people whose everyday life is marked by justice and righteousness, whose everyday life is marked by setting crooked things straight and coming against what's wrong and standing for what's right. And it must be said that today... Dr. King is more popular than he ever was when he was living, even among people who opposed him when he was living. But appreciating Dr. King's legacy can't be reduced to getting a quote on a sign and posting it in your yard or putting it on Twitter and Facebook. And honoring his legacy can't be left to car manufacturers selling pickup trucks during the Super Bowl. If we would believe verse 24 of Amos 5, and if we would more than honor Dr. King, but honor God, we must be these kind of people who let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Otherwise, beloved, we must come to think that God is not pleased with our songs and our quiet times and our offerings. God doesn't need those. He has a perfect sacrifice in his son. That's what pleases God. But what he calls us to do now is to do justice. That's our reasonable act of worship. That's not just Amos in his day. That's that's really running all the way through the prophets. So let me show it to you in one other place. Isaiah chapter 1, which we have been um, speaking of and we heard in the call to worship. Let me turn with me to Isaiah 1. Isaiah begins that that great um, book of prophecy on this very theme. And so he asked a question in verse 11 of Isaiah 1. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? This is God speaking through Isaiah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And then he brings his complaint in verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? It says in verse 13, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Verse 14, they have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. 
That's where we get the call to worship in verses 16 and 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. See how active a part of worship those things are. Seek justice. I mean, search for it like treasure. Hunt it like a hound. Correct oppression. Take your stance against it. Make the, make the crooked straight. Bring justice to the fatherless. You know, we're to become delivery boys of justice. We're, we're to show up at their homes bringing justice to them. Plead the widow's cause. We're to open our mouths. Speak up for the vulnerable. Take up their cause as our own. These are the worship requirements of a God who himself practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. Deuteronomy 16.20 captures it very succinctly. There Moses writes, justice and only justice you shall follow. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. There's the reward of offering worship that's pleasing to God when we become a people who seek after justice. And number three, there's the reward of better understanding the gospel itself. There's the reward of better understanding the gospel itself. This is why we need to think through this subject. And to see that, turn with me to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, down to 3, verse 5. This is what the word of the Lord says. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? You see what's happening there in verse 17? The the people are complaining against God because of their oppression and and they're they're accusing God of of basically treating evil people as good and and they're accusing God by saying, where is the God of justice? Why didn't he deliver us? And God says he's wearied by that. And this is what he says. He promises in verse 1 of chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years." If you know your Bibles, you you recognize what's going on in verses 1 to 4. There's the promise of a messenger who comes before the Lord. That's John the Baptist who prepares the way for the coming of Christ. And there's the promise of the Lord himself coming, which is fulfilled in the Son of God when Jesus takes on human flesh and comes to deliver his people from their sins. And that imagery there of of refiner's fire and fuller's soap, he comes in in such holiness and such intense purity that he, he purifies his people. And he does that supremely on the cross when he sheds his blood for the covering of our sins. 
And so the sons of Levi are purified. The the believers in Christ are purified and, and they are made righteous with the Lord and bring offerings to the Lord. And they're made pleasing in his sight. But then notice verse 5. Then, when this Messiah has come, when Jesus has come, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord. You see what the Lord says there? That the coming of the Messiah will be the bringing also of justice. He will witness against the injustice of sorcery. He will witness against the injustice of stealing someone else's spouse. He will witness against those who lie under oath. He will witness against those employers who who cheat their workers and those employers who cheat widows and orphans and vulnerable people. He will witness against those who kick out the immigrants. They wanted to know, where is the God of justice? God says, I'm coming. I'm coming. And when I come, I will purify those who are mine, and I will judge those who are not. And all throughout the Bible, this idea of the coming of God's justice in the world is tied together with the promise of the Messiah. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and this is what the text says, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Isaiah chapter 11, also talking about the righteous branch, says this in verse 4, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And Matthew tells us that Jesus fulfills this. Matthew 12, verses 18 to 20, quoting from Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. You see, beloved, justice is not contrary to Jesus. Jesus accomplishes justice. He's going to bring justice to victory. It's our joy to see that in our Savior, to see that in our Messiah. Not to lop that off of him, but to understand it rightly and to follow him in it. And this is the fourth reward, the final reward. If we do, we'll be happy will be happy. Matthew chapter 5 verse 6, Jesus preaching there in the Sermon on the Mount, going through the Beatitudes. Many of you will know this, blessed, which is a word that means happy or joyful. So he's telling us how to be happy in following him. 
And one of the things he says there in that list of things that bring happiness as his disciples, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Why? For they will be filled. Keep it in mind that righteousness and justice are twin words. That those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who hunger and thirst for justice, those who hunger and thirst for things to be made right according to God's word and God's rule, they will be filled. They will have that thirst satisfied. They will have that hunger satisfied. And that blessedness which Jesus promises will be theirs. You ever notice that injustice makes people unhappy? It's the nature of sin. It's the nature of brokenness to leave us unsatisfied, unfulfilled, and unhappy. And if we just stop and think for a moment, isn't it surely the truth that the opposite then, justice, will be the thing that makes us joyful, happy, peaceful, right, and satisfied? We're meant to pursue this because it's what God is pursuing. It's what the gospel brings to pass in Jesus Christ. It is the worship that pleases God. And it is what will satisfy our souls as people known by the name of God. That's why I think we want to give attention to this. That's why I think we want to pursue this, to understand it biblically, to practice it carefully, to be unified beneath the Bible and to put into practice what the Bible calls us to. Here's our main challenge in this series. Our main challenge in this series is to not hear this conversation with worldly filters, but to hear the Bible perhaps afresh. I'm convinced that most Bible-believing Christians have learned a hearing impairment on this subject. Just a mention of the word and many Christians will say, oh, that's liberal. Oh, that's, that's liberal. Well, no, beloved, it's a Bible word. If it is liberal, then it means God's liberal. And we had better become liberal then. This is a Bible word. It ain't got nothing to do with being liberal or conservative. It's got everything to do with being faithful. It's got everything to do with learning who God is and following him. And doing that as he instructs, in the spirit that he instructs, according to his word. So we're going to have to unlearn that conditioning so that we can hear God clearly and hear God happily. And we're going to have to learn to embrace some of the things that feel like threats or discomfort as just maybe the Holy Spirit messing around in our lives. And just maybe the word of God going to work at some things that need to be deepened or strengthened or changed altogether. And so I'm praying that as we go through this service, through this this series of sermons, I'm praying that God would let us get to know him better, that God would help us to understand the gospel more deeply, that God would purify us in our worship, and God would unify us and strengthen us in our witness to the world. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, this is for you too. This this pursuing justice, you need to understand that you, you stand in relationship to it too. 
Because this God who is just, as we saw in Malachi when he comes, and those who have rejected his son, well, you will see his justice in a way that, trust me, you, you don't want to see. It'll be his final judgment. And it'll be a sentence to hell. And he'll be right. It will be just if he condemns you because you have rejected him and chosen sin instead. But his justice may not be your judgment. It may be your salvation. It may be your rescue. Because this same God, Romans chapter 3 says, is just himself and the justifier of all those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means that he is both righteous in himself, and if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your God and your Savior, then the sentence, the verdict that he will pass will not be guilty and condemnation. The verdict that he will pass will be innocent, righteous, and enter into my kingdom. And he will be just to do that because Jesus died for your sins and rose again for your salvation. Believe in this Jesus and join us on this journey to serving God and bringing him glory. If you'd like to know more about how to do that, I'm going to be sticking around after the service. Talk with your Christian friend who brought you. Look around the room, see somebody dressed like they're from Wakanda. They can help you. (laughs) We don't take ourselves seriously, but we do take the gospel seriously. We laugh at ourselves, but we delight in Jesus And we would be very, very happy to tell you more about that. So stick around and talk with us after the service. I'm looking forward to the service and the sermon series. I hope you are. Pray for it. Ask the Lord to do a great deep work that shapes us through his word. Let's pray together. Father, we do praise you for your word. And we praise you for what you have for us in your word. Is more than we can hope or imagine. Sometimes we come to your word with our comfortable categories. We would never say it, but sometimes we come to your word as if we already know everything in it. Oh Lord, shake us from that. Take away from us that kind of thinking and give us a fresh openness, a fresh eagerness, clear hearing, so that we might see more deeply into your character and know and understand you and delight in you, glory in you, boast in you that you are, you are the Lord and you're the God who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. And make us like you. Whatever is our walk of life, we may be stay-at-home moms or, or we may be working on Capitol Hill. We we, we may be car mechanics or we may be heart surgeons or we, we may be unemployed or we may be retired. Whatever is our walk of life, help us to walk justly before you. Help us to be humble before you. Help us, O oh Lord, to love mercy so that you are glorified and we are satisfied. Do this for the praise of your name, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.